Hey guys, welcome to the Bitcoin Fortress podcast, helping you increase your financial freedom. This is episode 59, recorded here on April 9th, 2023. Happy Easter, happy Passover to those of you that celebrate those holidays. This podcast is for entertainment only and it's not investing advice. Please do your own homework. Well, got a lot to talk about this week, so we'll uh, jump right into the market update and outlook. Wall Street wrapped up the short but volatile week on a modestly upbeat note ahead of Friday's monthly jobs report. Stocks had been wobbly earlier in the week in response to signs of a slowing economy, including weak data on private payrolls and job openings. That marked a change from previous sentiment when investors cheered weak economic numbers in the hope that the Federal Reserve might ease up on its campaign of interest rate hikes. Now the market seems to be struggling to decide whether recession worries or rate hike worries are more meaningful to stock prices, with the exception of the Dow Jones average, the major stock market indexes, ended the week lower after three consecutive weekly gains for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ composite. The Dow rose 0.6% for the week, while the S&P lost 0.1% and the NASDAQ tumbled 1.1%. Looking ahead, the week begins slowly, with many markets across the world observing the Easter Monday holiday. However, the quiet start serves as a calm before the storm, as not only key CPI and PPI prints are due in midweek, but a host of key earnings reports. Jumping into Bitcoin news, the first article we have here is from the Bitcoinist.com and it was published uh looks like yesterday and our article is entitled first nuclear powered bitcoin mine in u.s reports 9,000 facilities energized in q1 and so uh i have a couple articles here on uh, bitcoin mining to go over which i think are are always interesting so the article goes on america's first nuclear powered Bitcoin Mine has announced remarkable results for the month of March 2023. This pioneering facility, which harnesses the power of nuclear energy to mine the world's leading cryptocurrency, has surpassed all expectations and cemented its position as a trailblazer in the field. The mining center, Nautilus, which is owned and operated by TerraWolf, utilized over 91% of zero-carbon energy to power approximately 9,200 miners. These powered miners played a significant role in contributing to TerraWolf's remarkable average operating hash rate of 3 exahash per second for the month, representing a massive 50% increase compared to February. According to the latest unaudited monthly production and operations news relief from TerraWolf, Nautilus continues to outshine its competitors in the Bitcoin mining realm. TerraWolf's operational miner fleet of around 27,200 miners, which includes 18,000 operational miners at the Lake Mariner facility and 9,200 self-miners at the Nautilus facility, has played a crucial role in achieving an outstanding self-mining hash rate capacity of 2.8 exahash per second. This marks a phenomenal 65% increase in the first quarter of 2023. 
We continue to execute as promised, delivering strong results in Q1 2023. Carrie Langlais, Chief Strategy Officer of TerraWolf, stated, we believe the continued hard work and commitment of our people has positioned us to achieve a goal of five and a half exahash per second of capacity in the second quarter. In August 2021, TerraWolf and Cumulus Data, a subsidiary of Talon Energy, announced their joint venture, Nautilus. The aim was to build a green data center that would operate using nuclear power. Fast forward to January 2023, and the shell for the data center has been completed thanks to the 2.5 gigawatt nuclear power station that's powering it. TerraWolf has a 25% stake in the project, which is expected to reduce the company's energy costs and achieve a computing power of 5.5 exahash per second by the second quarter of 2023. While concerns about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining persist, the trend of upgrading machines and adding new fleets shows no signs of slowing down. Since 2016, the global hash rate for mining has continuously increased. The Nautilus project is not only considered a significant step towards more sustainable Bitcoin mining practices, but it also marks a crucial milestone in the adoption of nuclear energy in the tech industry. By harnessing the power of nuclear energy, Nautilus Crypto Mine has the potential to significantly reduce the costs associated with Bitcoin mining and mitigate its environmental impact. So uh, good to see that this is happening. And I do think that, uh, you know, one of the things I learned about nuclear power that I didn't realize is that, you know, you can't just turn it on and turn it off. It, it's once it's on, it's producing power at all times. And so if there's not demand for power, then you have to send the power somewhere else. And uh, sometimes it actually costs you money. <laughs> Instead of selling power, you actually have to pay people to take your power. I think this happens a lot of times um, uh, with some of the, the nuclear power plants. And I think it was, you know, in Canada that, that supply the U.S. and things like that. So, um I just thought that was kind of interesting. So to to be able to uh, always have demand for the energy, um, you know, uh, number one, it's good because you know Bitcoin mining is can shut down when it needs to if the grid needs more power, um, which then takes those miners offline and then allows them, you know, uh, the, you know the grid to sort of recover. And then, but then of course the mining mining company's not making any money. When they're not mining so to have a purpose-built um situation where you know it's always on is obviously going to be much more profitable for the mining company not only because they can be up all the time but also uh because the cost of the nuclear energy is super low uh, especially if it's purpose-built that way so and of course it's green although i i've talked about this before i don't really care about the energy arguments uh, for bitcoin mining because i think you need to evaluate whether or not something is a good use of energy or not, and Bitcoin mining is. And all forms of energy are welcome, but uh, it's good news nonetheless uh, here. So moving forward, uh, and again, Bitcoin mining's been in the news a lot lately, under attack in different parts of the country. Um, and uh, this article here is from Cointelegraph. Uh, this was updated yesterday. It's called, uh, titled, Bill Protecting Bitcoin Mining Rights Passes in Arkansas Senate and House. So I thought this would be kind of interesting to go through. 
article goes on, a bill seeking to regulate Bitcoin mining activity in Arkansas has passed in the state's House of Representatives and Senate. The bill will now move to the governor's office for approval. According to the bill, the Arkansas Data Centers Act of 2023 intends to regulate the Bitcoin mining industry in the American state, creating guidelines for miners and protecting them from discriminatory regulations and taxes. Arkansas's state legislators quickly passed the bill after it was proposed on March 30th by Senator Joshua Bryant. The document recognizes that data centers create jobs, pay taxes, and provide general economic value to local communities. As per the approved bill, a digital asset miner is required to pay applicable taxes and government fees and acceptable forms of currency and operate in a manner that causes no stress on an electric public utilities generation capabilities or transmission network. Under the legislation, crypto miners will also have the same rights as data centers. The bill outlines the Arkansas uh, government, government should not impose a different requirement for a digital asset mining business than is applicable to any requirement for a data center. Arkansas's move follows a similar initiative in the state of Montana. In late March, the Montana Senate passed a bill to protect crypto miners operating within the state. The bill intends to protect miners against taxes on digital assets used for payments and to eliminate energy rates discriminating against home crypto miners and digital asset businesses. The state of Texas went in a different direction. Its Senate Committee on Business and Commerce passed legislation on April 4th that would essentially remove incentives for miners operating under the state's crypto-friendly regulatory environment. Cointelegraph reported. Uh, an even more decisive move came from New York in November 2022 when Governor Kathy Hochul signed a proof-of-work mining moratorium into law banning crypto mining activities in the state for two years. On a federal level, crypto miners in the United States could eventually be subject to a 30% tax on electricity costs under a budget proposal introduced on March 9th by President Joe Biden aimed to, quote, reduce mining activity. Um, so anyway, this is a nice overview of uh, some of the things that are going on in the space. And of course, we'll have to keep an eye on mining if, you know, the U.S. government wants to uh, push mining offshore. Uh, there'll be a fight, but, you know, it'll go, mining will go wherever it's treated best, and um, it's going to continue because the economic incentives are there, you know, the, the block rewards and, and all that. China, as probably many of you know, listened to my podcast, you know, uh, was, you know, kicked all the miners out a couple of years ago, big drop in hash rate, and then all the miners moved somewhere else and set up shop in the U.S. or Uzbekistan or you know, several other countries around the world and hash rate went right back up um, because, again, the economic incentives are there. So, um, but interesting to see that some of the states are stepping in here and attempting to uh, to protect mining as a, you know, legitimate business. Uh, next article here is a little bit of FUD. Uh, I like reading these because it's it's sort of an interesting to see what the government is saying and um, and uh, communicating uh, in terms of their intent and um, you know their rationale, I guess, for cracking down on uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin and all that. So this article here is uh, from CoinDesk. This is uh, was posted on April sixth. It looks like and it's titled "U.S. Treasury Warns DeFi." 
is used by North Korea scammers to launder dirty money. Decentralized finance services that aren't compliant with anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules pose the, quote, the most significant current illicit finance risk in that corner of the crypto sector, according to the U.S. Department of the Treasury's first analysis of hazards from the technology. In an expected risk assessment published Thursday, the Treasury Department said thieves, scammers, ransomware, cyber criminals, and actors for the Democratic People's Republic of Korea are using DeFi to launder proceeds from crime. On the basis of its findings, the department recommends an assessment of possible enhancements to U.S. anti-money laundering requirements and the rules for countering the financing of terrorism as they should be applied to DeFi services. It also calls for input from the private sector to inform the next steps. Clearly, we can't do this alone, said Brian Nelson, Treasury's Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence in a Thursday webcast hosted by ACAMS, a global organization focused on preventing financial crime. We call on the private sector to use the findings of the risk assessment to inform your own risk mitigation strategies. The 40-page report warns that DeFi services at present often do not implement AML, CFT controls, or other processes to identify customers, allowing layering of proceeds to take place instantaneously and pseudonymously. The report references several instances where DeFi projects have affirmatively touted a lack of AML, CFT controls as one of the primary goals of decentralization. A footnote in the document cites Shapeshift's 2021 transformation to a decentralized exchange for the purpose of ceasing to collect customer information for AML CFT compliance. When these entities fail to register with the appropriate regulator, fail to establish and maintain sufficient AML CFT controls, or do not comply with sanctions obligations, criminals are more likely to exploit their services successfully, including to circumvent U.S. and United Nations sanctions, the report said. Although the goal of the assessment is to identify the scope of an issue, the report recommends the U.S. government strengthen its AML-CFT regulatory supervision and consider providing additional guidance for the private sector on compliance checks for DeFi services. The assessment furthers the work outlined in President Joe Biden's executive order on crypto from last year, and Nelson said it's the first of its kind in the world. Other jurisdictions, including the European Union, have also started looking at tackling money laundering risks associated with DeFi. Nelson noted that DeFi can often pose challenges in trying to figure out the individuals behind the business activities, but he pointed out it doesn't matter whether the services are centralized or decentralized when figuring out whether they're covered by the Bank Secrecy Act. He said even in those he said even those that claim full decentralization can really engage in a wide range of activity that falls somewhere closer to traditional finance than they're suggesting in some ways they're really decentralized in name only he said and this is kind of true um in terms of um defi uh it really isn't the only really de de decentralized finance is bitcoin because uh, nobody controls it um, and there's no uh, board of directors or founders, council governing it. Um, and so, um, you know, all of DeFi is supported by Ethereum or other tokens, and those are basically centralized. So that part I agree with, but um, I don't know. I think the AML 
rules and everything else that were uh, initiated, uh, really going back to the Patriot Act. Well, the Bank Secrecy Act, I think, even predated the Patriot Act and then Patriot Act. And now they've got this new thing that I talked about last week, the uh, the Restrict Act. Uh, all this is, is, you know, first of all, I don't think it's really stopped terrorism. I think terrorism is still happening. And I think what has happened is all of your private information is now stored on all these servers everywhere for all these financial companies that have to collect all this information. And of course, you know, I mean, I get emails every week, you know, that, oh, your data was hacked. Uh, we're going to buy you some, you know, uh, you know, um, insurance, not insurance, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, credit monitoring service or something to make sure that you know your your information doesn't doesn't result in a loan being taken out in your name or whatever which is why i just froze all my credit you know years ago and uh, it's just frozen and then whenever i need to, to open up a new account i just unfreeze it because your information's out there and you know and, and and a lot of that is due to this these a aml and kyc laws so I think it's just the government just is uh, creeping closer and closer and closer into, you know, what you do every day. And it's uh, it's not freedom, but they'll always hold up the, um, you know, the excuse that uh, it's to protect you from criminals or to protect us from terrorists. But, but really, um, I, I'm not believing that anymore. I think that, uh, you know, while there may be criminals and, and uh, others, you know, that, that do take advantage of these things, they also use an awful lot of cash, dollars, digital and otherwise, um, in their activities. And frankly, cash dollars is the best because it's totally untraceable, right? So um, kind of reminds me of, you know, how the State Department will put out these things about how dangerous Mexico is and you know you'll see these news articles about oh look you know these people got shot or got caught in the crossfire you know with the warring drug gangs or whatever then you talk to people who've actually gone to Mexico and they're like yeah it was fine had a great time you know meanwhile in San Francisco people are getting stabbed and beaten with pipes you know and uh so you know you just got to be careful wherever you go but uh, it doesn't, it's just, it's all part of the narrative. So you just have to be aware of, of, like when I read news now, I just look at it and I'm like, okay, why is this being delivered to me right now? That's the first question I ask. Why is this news? And then I try to, to check other sources. Um, I guess I've become more skeptical in my old age. Okay, moving on, next article. Always like hearing from him. This is from Jim Rickards, uh, entitled U.S. Dollar's Greatest Enemy as Reserve Currency is the Treasury. Uh, this is from Bitcoin.com, was just updated uh, today. Uh, Economist and Currency Wars author Jim Rickards has warned that despite China and other nations intensifying their efforts to reduce their dependency on the U.S. dollar, the U.S. dollar's biggest threat comes from the Treasury, he stressed on Fox & Friends weekend Saturday. The greatest enemy of the dollar as a reserve currency is not all those other countries, it's the U.S. Treasury. Rickards explained the difference between payment and reserve currency. He noted that 
While many countries are moving away from using the U.S. dollar for payments, the bigger threat to the U.S. dollar is its potential replacement as a reserve currency, he detailed. The U.S. Treasury has weaponized the dollar, frozen the reserves of the Central Bank of Russia and other countries looking around saying, hey, what if they don't like what I did? What if they don't like one of my policies? Are they going to freeze my reserves? If you say I want to get out of the dollar as a reserve currency, the only real alternative is gold, the economist opined. Uh, I personally would agree gold, but I also think Bitcoin's a, a, a probably a better alternative. Commenting on efforts by China and several other countries to challenge the U.S. dollar as a payment currency, Rickard said, that's a big deal. The dollar is being attacked from all sides. People are looking for substitute payment currencies. A growing group of nations, which includes China, Russia, India, Malaysia, and Saudi Arabia, have made efforts to reduce their reliance on the U.S. dollar. Recently, China and Brazil reached an agreement to re replace the U.S. dollar with their own currencies and trade transactions. Moreover, uh, ASEAN countries have agreed to reduce their reliance on the U.S. dollar for trade settlements, and the BRICS nations are reportedly working on creating a new currency. So, uh, you know, a lot has been written about this, a lot of uh, fear-mongering in the, in, in the um, mainstream media now about dollar reserve currency status, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, uh, it's got a pretty big network. Um, a lot of people use it to, they have debt denominated in dollars that they have to pay. So is it declining? Yes. Is it going to go away tomorrow? No. How long will it take? Who knows? Could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years. But uh, there's definitely um, a lot happening now around trying to, you know, establish, uh, you know, we're moving from a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. to a bipolar world. And so there will be um, probably, um, you know, different systems um, that will come come up. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, even if it was a basket of currencies backed by gold, that might sound better. But it's, you know, whenever you have fiat currency, even if it's backed, it doesn't doesn't matter because, you know, you can always come off that standard. You can always print more of that currency. And so um, um, really no, no alternative currency is really that great. And right now the dollar is the best of the bunch, the dirtiest the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry basket, I think, is uh, what some people say about that. So, but of course, we'll continue to keep an eye on that and um, make sure that we have uh, our investments in things that are safe from uh, devaluation of the dollar. Uh, next one here, a little bit more of a fear mongering <laughs> with uh, Peter Schiff. Uh, always like to hear from him. Don't like his takes on Bitcoin, but he's a pretty smart guy. And, uh, you know, uh, it's always interesting to hear what he has to say. So this was just posted, uh, I think, yesterday on Bitcoin.com. And again, as always, I'll include links to all these articles in the show notes if you want to read it for yourself. Economist Peter Schiff advises get rid of your U.S. dollars now. Warns U.S. dollars reserve currency status in jeopardy. So he's a little bit feeding into the mainstream media frenzy that's going on around this. I think Tucker Carlson talked about it last week. It's always interesting. Uh, when things get to the mainstream media, you got to almost start thinking about doing the opposite, <laughs> which is, that's what George Gammon says. 
like go along on the dollar because uh, you know it's <laughs> it's in the mainstream media. Uh, so Peter says, uh, let's see, gold bug and economist Peter Schiff has urged U.S. dollar holders to get rid of their U.S. dollar now, he tweeted Friday. How much clearer does the writing on the wall need to be? Get rid of your U.S. dollars now while there's still enough people who still can't read it. His tweet was prompted by an article titled Saudi Arabia, Southeast Asian Nations Swipe Left on U.S. Dollar Dependence which highlights the mounting efforts by countries in Southeast Asia and the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia and the ASEAN countries to reduce their reliance on the U.S. and the dollar. The Turkish Central Bank also recently unveiled measures to ramp up their de-dollarization efforts. Tweet, uh, Schiff tweeted on Thursday, the dollar's reserve currency status is in jeopardy, as is the American standard of living that depends on it. The best move you can make to mitigate your personal loss is to divest of dollars and dollar-denominated financial assets. The Economist has repeatedly issued warnings about the state of the U.S. economy and the looming devaluation of the U.S. dollar. In a recent tweet, he cautioned that the U.S. economy is poised on the biggest economic disaster in its history, emphasizing that we are on the cusp of a financial crisis that will be bigger than the last one. Schiff also tweeted Thursday, Soon everyone in America will be a multimillionaire, but don't get too excited. Chewing gum will sell for over $1,000 per pack, and all those higher taxes meant to soak today's millionaires and billionaires will drench tomorrow's middle class. I got to agree with him on that. Um, that's the unfortunate thing, is if you have a large amount of inflation, um, you'll make more money. It'll buy less, right? Because the inflation is going up at a higher rate than typically than what your raise will come in at, um, but it'll also push up your um, push you up into a higher tax bracket as well. And so, um, you know, you'll end up paying more taxes, um, so you have even less because uh, you'll be in a higher tax bracket. Your your earnings, even though nominally are higher, are buying less and less goods. Uh, so it, it's really a it's a terrible system and it makes you poor and that's that's the real threat of of inflation um so can't disagree with the man there um i thought next it would be good i've talked a lot about the lightning network and i found a nice article um in bitcoin magazine on the you know what it is and kind of pretty detailed discussion on it so i thought it'd be good to go through this um and uh, talk about it because i think it's an important part of the bitcoin network and i think it really allows us to be able to use bitcoin as a uh as a very low cost and 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 anonymous um, payment uh, tool and and it's getting a lot of uh, traction on on um in the uh, value for value space with podcasting, you know, you can you can go on Fountain, for example, and and uh, send Sats to your favorite shows, or use Sats to post comments. Um, uh, you can also earn Sats by listening to podcasts, um, and then even on Noster, you know, if you really like something somebody posted, a meme that was funny or whatever, you can send them Sats on. Uh, on that app, so it's it's really kind of creating a, a whole sort of ecosystem um, that's completely you know off 
you know, the, you know, any type of fiat currency uh, rails. So. Uh, so we'll jump in here. The Lightning Network is a layer two protocol for Bitcoin specifically designed for cheap, fast and private payments. There's an overlay network consisting of payment channels. Lightning payments are not recorded on Bitcoin's blockchain. Only channel funding transactions and channel closing transactions are. This effectively means that many Lightning transactions can be settled with much fewer on-chain Bitcoin transactions. By settling many light Lightning transactions into much fewer Bitcoin transactions, users and miners on the Bitcoin network are relieved of having to validate and store all of these Lightning transactions. As perhaps the main benefit, this translates into lower fees for Lightning users. Furthermore, Lightning users no longer need to wait for confirmations on the Bitcoin blockchain. Transactions are instant. Finally, as an added bonus, the fact that transactions aren't recorded on the blockchain in combination with a Tor-like routing algorithm for Lightning payments means that Lightning users generally enjoy some extra privacy. The Lightning Network was first proposed in 2015. The Lightning Network white paper, uh, full title, The Bitcoin Lightning Network Scalable Off-Chain Instant Payments, authored by Joseph Poon and Thaddeus Stryja. Various design aspects of the Lightning Network date back even further than the white paper. Since then, several teams have developed different Lightning implementations, including Blockstream C Lightning, Lightning Labs, LND, and Async's Eclair. All implementations are compatible through the Bolt protocol specifications. The Lightning Network is still being improved every day. It's a work in progress. Sats, or Satoshis, are the smallest denomination of Bitcoin that is recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain. One sat represents one one hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. The name is taken from the pseudonymous creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto. Because Bitcoin has risen in value to the point that mere fractions of Bitcoin are enough to pay for many goods and services, for regular investments and for micro-tasking payments, Bitcoin is often denominated in sats. The use of sats also allows users to make transactions worth less than one U.S. cent. A hashtag stacking sats is used on social media in reference to the habitual accrual of satoshis and earning platforms like Carrot payout rewards and sats for the completion of tasks. On Bitcoin, fees are paid to miners to include transactions in a block, but the Lightning Network doesn't itself doesn't have miners nor blocks, although as a layer two solution, it ultimately does depend on miners and blocks. Of course, without miners and blocks, there would be no Bitcoin and therefore no Lightning Network. Instead, fees are paid to Lightning nodes on the network that do the jobs of providing liquidity uh, or funded channels and forwarding transactions. Some nodes will charge more than others, but fees are generally low. And since anyone can set up a competing node, competition will probably keep fees fairly low. Paying fees is typically abstracted away in the wallet, not something you need to worry about too much. Unlike on-chain transactions, there's no risk of including a fee that's too low. Your transaction either goes through immediately or it does not go through at all. If you'd like to earn fees yourself, you'll have to set up a Lightning node, ideally one that is well-connected with many other nodes on the Lightning network and with a lot of liquidity in different channels. It also helps to have this node online as much as possible. Like a Bitcoin node, a Lightning Network node is software that connects to the network to send and receive Bitcoin through Lightning from other nodes. In essence, the Lightning Network is made up of these nodes. 
To really participate in the Lightning Network, users should consider running their own nodes. You don't have to run a node to send Bitcoin through Lightning Network channels, but running your own node helps the network grow, increases liquidity, and might help you turn a profit. Bitcoin wallets are the programs or apps that allow users to send and receive Bitcoin. Bitcoin wallets that are enabled to function with Lightning Network allow users to make and receive Lightning payments. As with Bitcoin wallets in general, there are different versions of Lightning-enabled wallets, which each have their own unique properties and trade-offs. Desktop Lightning wallets, for example, may be someone's preferred choice because they want to check in on their channels frequently, but the Lightning network is designed to facilitate relatively small Bitcoin transactions in the first place, and many users do not emphasize full node security. For many, mobile Lightning wallets are the preferred choice, even though it's difficult to host a full node on a mobile device because they're most convenient. To set up a Lightning channel, you need to run a Lightning node or have a Lightning wallet. Popular options include C-Lightning and LND nodes and Eclair Zap and the Lightning app wallets. Once all this is set up, you can set up a payment channel with another Lightning node or wallet through a unique code corresponding to that node. How this is done exactly differs slightly from one solution to the other. Once set up, you can transact through the channel and with the rest of the network for as long as channel funds allow. Depending on your setup, you can also forward transactions for other users and possibly earn fees. <clears throat> Strictly speaking, you need to have at least one payment channel open to send or receive Lightning payments. That said, if for some reason you don't want to open a Lightning channel yet, there are other ways around it. For example, some Lightning wallets like Blue Wallet offer custodial solutions. This essentially means that when users receive payments, it's actually the operational team behind the wallet that received the payment on behalf of them. The funds can be withdrawn by the wallet user, but until then it's really controlled by the Blue Wallet team. This has the benefit that users can start accepting payments immediately, but it has the obvious downside that the users have to trust the wallet team to let them withdraw funds when they choose to. Alternatively, a service like Submarine Swaps lets users make payments without having a Lightning channel open. Instead, users send a regular on-chain transaction to the service, which then forwards the payment as a Lightning payment to the intended recipient. All these types of payments can be trustless, meaning the service provider can't back out of forwarding the payment. It does mean that users need to pay on-chain fees and an additional fee for the service on top. Wumbo is a Lightning implementation developed to remove the limit to the amount of Bitcoin that can be held in a Lightning channel, originally limited to uh, 0.16777215 Bitcoin, and a cap on how large individual payments can be. These limits were first put in place because of the risk associated with the Lightning net network when it was a brand new and relatively untested technology. For a payment channel to circumvent the caps via Wumbo, users on both sides must signal their desire. The development was named after a term coined in an episode of the cartoon SpongeBob SquarePants in which the character Patrick Starr defines the word Wumbo by using it in a series of examples. I Wumbo, you Wumbo, he, she, me, Wumbo, he says. The word was applied to the lightning development as a, at a November 2018 summit seemingly because that quote implies the type of mutual consent required by the agreement to exceed the original channel and payment caps. However, direct quotes and ideas from the summit were not allowed to be tied to specific individuals per the summit's rules to encourage the free exchange of ideas. 
If both sides of a new channel agree to wombo each other by setting option I wombo you wombo, they can build channels with capacity higher than 167.77216 uh, million BTC. No, BTC. As as Lightning developer uh, ZMNSCPXJ explained to the Lightning dev mailing list at the time. A node that advertises option Wombo-Rama allows any node to build channels with capacity above the limit. Please blame one of the persons attending the second Lightning Development Conference for this term. The Eclair and C Lightning clients adopted Wombo's support in early 2020, and LND started supporting Wombo channels in August 2020. The Lightning Network was originally proposed as a solution to address the Bitcoin blockchain scalability problem, as the network white paper phrased it. As the authors describe, Bitcoin is unable to serve effectively as the world's payment platform because it broadcasts all transactions to all network participants. If each node in the Bitcoin network must know about every single transaction that occurs globally, it may create a significant drag on the ability of the network to encompass all global financial transactions. Per the white paper, it would instead be desirable to encompass all transactions in a way that doesn't sacrifice the decentralization and security that the network provides. As the authors went on to point out, a traditional payment network like Visa can manage uh, 47,000 transactions per second, while Bitcoin was supporting fewer than seven transactions per second with its one megabyte block limit. Their proposed solution to the scaling problem was the Lightning Network, a layer two protocol that allows users to transact with Bitcoin while only recording these transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain when channels are funded or closed. While the Lightning Network offers massive scaling potential to Bitcoin and an alternative to the world's traditional payment systems, it is still a relatively new technology with minor adoption. It's possible that all the risks that could come as a result of massive Lightning adoption have not yet been identified. And even at this nascent stage, it's important to, under to acknowledge some of the technology's shortcomings. Because the Lightning Network has relatively few operational nodes, it's possible for funds to become concentrated on certain nodes, a reality that poses a centralized risk that should not occur for the Bitcoin network. If a node with a high concentration of funds were to try and cheat many users at the same time, it could cause significant disruption to the network. Also, as noted above, these transactions are relatively slow because they're broadcasted across the entire network as a feature of Bitcoin's public and decentralized ledger. Essentially, the Lightning Network improves speed by allowing for transactions within channels that are not broadcasted to the entire network, which could be a security trade-off in and of itself. This opens up a potential opportunity for bad actors within these channels. Say Molly has a channel with Angela and each deposit 10,000 sats into it for a total of 20,000 sats for a scenario described by Bitcoin Magazine in 2019. During the channel's lifetime, Angela pays Molly 5,000 sats, bringing the total to 15,000 sats for Molly and 5,000 for Angela. But suddenly, for whatever reason, Molly is unable to access her Lightning Wallet. Maybe her node is offline, her computer has a malfunction, or she's on vacation. So Angela decides to be a bit mischievous. When it comes time to broadcast the final state of the channel to the blockchain, she decides to broadcast the first state of the channel, the original 10,000 sat balance that they both deposited to cheat Molly out of what she was paid. 
Since Molly's on a remote island in the Gulf of Mexico and not on her computer, she can't check Angela's bad behavior and verify the actual state of the channel, so she loses 5,000 sats. To mitigate this risk, Lightning Network developers have introduced a technical feature called watchtowers that monitor channels. When channels are updated, an encrypted blob containing a secret signature corresponds to the user's public key is sent to the watchtower. Simultaneously, the watchtower receives half of the transaction ID for the channel's previous state, which serves as the decryption key for the blob. The watchtower stores these blobs and decryption keys so that if a bad actor attempts to broadcast an older channel state to the mempool, it can recognize that the transaction ID matches another transaction ID half it holds. With both transaction ID halves, the watchtower can decrypt the corresponding blob and then deny the bad actor and send the funds to the honest channel user's wallet. The exact amount of Bitcoin that's held within channels on the Lightning Network at any given time is difficult to estimate. Uh, as BitMEX Research explained in its 2020 series on the Lightning Network, there are different types of transactions that can be identified differently through blockchain data, and not all are very clearly attributable to Lightning channels. <coughs> to summarize one part of its report, there are three Lightning Network transaction types that can be analyzed via public blockchain data opening a channel, cooperative channel closures, and non-cooperative channel closures. A non-cooperative lightning channel closure occurs when a lightning network node initiates a payment channel closure without directly communicating with the node that the channel is linked to. Meanwhile, a cooperative channel closure means that both channel participants have agreed to close the channel and settle the final state of the channel onto the blockchain. For public lightning channels, it's possible to identify opening transactions from data obtained from a public lightning network node. Also, opening transactions may be identified later on when the transaction output is redeemed during channel closing. If that closing is non-cooperative, but per BitMEX research, it may not be possible to reliably identify all channel opening transactions from blockchain data alone. It's difficult to tell with certainty that non-cooperative lightning channel closures are tied to lightning when analyzing blockchain data, according to BitMEX Research's report. However, the report noted that these closures can be directly identified on the blockchain with reasonable certainty, and that these transactions can be characterized more accurately when the output of the transaction is redeemed following the channel closure. BitMEX Research noted that it's possible to scan the Bitcoin block chain for all spends redeemed using a two-of-two two multi-signature script, which would suggest that it's a lightning transaction, but this wouldn't provide certainty. Because of this, it seems impossible at this point definitely to definitely identify cooperative channel closures on the blockchain and to get a precise accounting of lightning activity. Another 2020 report by BitMEX Research estimated that 72.2% of lightning channels identified with a sweep transaction analysis methodology were public channels while 27.8% were private. However, a general measure of the Lightning Network capacity is publicly available via Bitcoin visuals and other data aggregators. This is a measure of the cumulative Bitcoin capacity across all publicly known Lightning Network channels. And as of the time of this writing, the amount of Bitcoin that can be confirmed as being transacted on Lightning channels has grown rather steadily since the network was introduced. In addition, there is likely much more Bitcoin on the Lightning Network that cannot be publicly identified as being held in Lightning Channels. So hopefully you enjoyed that. That was a pretty 
in-depth discussion on the Lightning Network. And again, I think it's really important to understand as Bitcoiners uh, because it's it's going to become you know a really important um, way to make payments in the future. Um, And then I also wanted to mention this week's uh, blog post. I won't go into it in detail here. Um, it's entitled Bitcoin Estate Plan, some thoughts on generation wealth transfer, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but basically just kind of actually listened to a, uh, a webinar last week put on by Unchained Capital. It's, kinda, it's the second one that I've actually listened to that they do on... Um, estate planning and, and, and all that with Bitcoin and um, thought it was really interesting. And so I wanted to write a little bit about it. Uh, so that's out there. Okay. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please like and leave a comment. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. You can follow my Substack at bitcoinfortress.substack.com and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Nick Reichert. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye-bye.